Today we're going to be in Luke 18, starting with verse 18. The last time we saw the instructions for us to pray with persistence and humility, we saw how to follow him and how to continue in fellowship with our Father in heaven. Today we're going to see what it costs to follow him. Because you know, nothing of value comes easy in this life. We're going to see the bifurcation, if you will, the division between two parties, the rich young ruler and the disciples, and how they respond to the costs of following the Lord, and how depending on which side you are on will determine your eternal real estate. We're going to start with the familiar rich young ruler, which is chock full of lessons. Uh, Jimmy Acapinti, one of our elders, did a Bible study on it. He also did a devotional. And there's so much to this passage. And I'm going to be as comprehensive as possible, but I'm sure I'm not going to hit all the points. Let's start with verse 18. It says, Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you take all the gospel accounts of this into account, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this incident. Uh, This guy is a rich, young ruler. And let's break that down a little bit. He's young. The word in the Greek is neaniskos, which means somebody between the ages of 20 and 40. So that's good. I'm still in that category for another year and a half. I'm considered young. Wealthy. He's a wealthy guy, and also he's a ruler. The Greek word is archon, which is where we get in the English hierarchy or archangel. It's a higher order. He's a ruler. Most likely he was a synagogue ruler. But the first problem that he has is the rich young ruler starts with a faulty premise. He says, what must I do? And that's a problem because it's nothing that we can do to attain eternal life. Rather, what did Jesus do on the cross? What he did on the cross determines our eternal security. Many who try to work their way into heaven will find out that it just won't work. The other thing he says is, what must I do to inherit? Remember, from his perspective, he's a rich man. This is a logical question because progeny inherits wealth. Not so, though, with the kingdom of heaven. Most of the people that were storming the gates of the kingdom of heaven were those of the, the humble, the poor, those of little reputation. So it's, it's a little bit different than he's, he's looking at. But, and I'm not trying to make a grammar lesson out of this, nor was the Lord. But grammar often, not always, but often is a reflection of the heart. You see, it's all about faulty preconceptions, even suffering. Um, why does God allow suffering? Why does God send people to hell? People start off with a faulty premise. That's like if you ever uh, had the occasion to watch court TV or be in a courtroom, uh, the, the attorneys will cross-examine you. And they'll say, yes or no, Joe, when did you stop beating your wife? Now, if I say, or, or did you stop beating your wife? If I say yes, that implies that I used to beat my wife. If I say no, that implies I'm still beating her. So you can't win, but it's, it's a faulty premise. It's not a yes or no answer. And people do that with God. There's a lot of emotionalism, and we try to blame God for the problems that we have on this earth. But it's, it's, it's not his fault. It's about rebellion. Uh, human beings are rebellious by nature and sin. Verse, or verse 19. So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. So Jesus answers him, The man asks a question, Jesus answers a question with another question. 
That was a common uh, rabbinical style. It's also a good psychoanalytical technique. Jesus was probing him to self-determine where he stands. Why He's asking him, why are you calling me good if only God is good? Are you acknowledging that I am God? Was was kind of reflected in that, that question back to him. Now the question here is, was his grammar at that point a reflection of his heart or was something else at work? Was he trying to flatter the Lord? Was he trying to, you know, basically say to him, I'm a dignitary, you're pretty popular, you're a dignitary, how about I ask you a question, throw me a softball on the answer? Well, apparently he didn't get a softball thrown back at him. Because the rabbis were addressed by respectful terms, but the term good was normally re reserved for God himself. If you look throughout the Psalms, it's littered through the Psalms. The Lord is good. All these, uh, every time they speak about the Lord, it's, he's saying that he's good. Jesus is trying to get the ruler to analyze his own words to see if they reconcile with his beliefs regarding the deity of Christ. And that's the burning question that every human being needs to answer. Do you believe that Jesus is God? Well, the Pharisees didn't, or they refused to see it, so they tried to kill him for his claim of deity. That was considered blasphemy in their law, and it was punishable by death. I'm going to read a few scriptures. If you're taking notes, uh, this is really good regarding the deity of Christ. John 8:23. And, and he, Jesus, said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In the Greek, the word he, it's ego eimi, which means I am. The word he was put in there for, for clarification. But there's something different about this man. He's telling them that if they don't believe that he is who he says he is, they will die in their sins. This indicates that Jesus is more than just a man. In verse, uh, same, same John chapter 8, verse 57. Then the Jews said to him, Jesus, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. There's nothing you can do with this word. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, which doesn't seem to make sense in, 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 in the way the tense is set up. But remember, when Moses said to God, who shall I say sent me? Moses said, tell them that, yod heh that was his name. It wasn't a name, it was more of an expression of who God was, I am. So God was always, he is present, and he will always be. And Jesus took that term for God and, and brought it to himself. Now, this is very telling in verse 59. Even if you didn't understand that whole exchange, it says they took up stones to throw at him because they believed that he was blaspheming. He was equating himself with God. And the reason why Jesus hid, it wasn't his time to die yet. There was a pointed time in human history for the Messiah to die for the sins of the people, and it wasn't at that time. That's why he... He went away from them. Also, John 10, 27 through 33. And people often ask me, they say, Joe, you know, people knock on my door and they, they want to tell me about Christianity and they deny the deity of Christ. How do I answer them? Well, this is the best way. This is the, these scriptures are, are incredible here. Uh, John 10, verse 27. 
Jesus says, my, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. I give them eternal life. Can any of us say that about anybody? Could we say that even about our kids? We can't give anybody anything. Only God can give eternal life. Uh, and he said, no one shall snatch them out of my hand. If you're taking notes, Isaiah 43, verse 13 in the Old Testament, Isaiah 43:13, God said the same thing, that he would not let any of them to be taken from him. So Jesus, again, keeps taking God's attributes and characteristics onto himself. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Now, I couldn't say that. Could any of you say that? That's pretty heavy. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Isaiah 9, 6 in the Old Testament. This is where Isaiah is prophesying about the coming Messiah. And uh, he speaks about what he would be like. And he says this in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I certainly wouldn't take any of these terms for myself. This is how you know that the Messiah was supposed to be more than a man. Even the prophets, there's no way these guys would take these terms. God says, I am. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, none of them said, I am, right? Uh, also, it says his name shall be called Wonderful. In Hebrew, another way that you can interpret that word is miracle. You know, this is, this is for the crowd who says, well, you know, the Messiah, Jesus, was not supposed to be God. You can't get around this. Okay, wonderful or miracle is the first word, counselor. The third word, mighty God. In Hebrew, it's El Gebor, means the mighty God. There's no other way to interpret that. Everlasting Father or Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom. Okay? Also in Micah 5, 2, it said that the Messiah that would be born would be from everlasting or from eternity. So indicating that, yes, he was going to be born in the flesh, but he always existed prior to that leaving the heavenly realm and coming down into the temporal world. So these are some really good scriptures to help us understand the deity of Christ. Another one, if you're taking notes, is Deuteronomy 6.4. They call that the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Again, the word is echad in the Hebrew versus yachid. And I've talked to people who know Hebrew, and it's, again, you can't play with the words. The word echad, uh, Moses used to understand to be a compound unity. It's not an absolute number. The word yachid was not used, which means absolutely one. So even in the Old Testament, God is telling the, the Jewish people, he's giving them hints about himself. So these are all good things for you to really solidify why you believe what you believe about the deity of Christ. So the question is, where do you stand on this? You know, the deity of Christ is often attacked by false religions because it exposes them for what they are. They can't stand under the concept of the deity of Christ, so they must attack it, and you'll see that. Verse 20, uh, continuing, verse 20, he says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. Now, in Matthew's gospel, he records the same exchange, okay? But after the commandments that Jesus speaks about in Matthew's gospel, it records that Jesus also said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
which is really a summation of the prior five commandments that he just spoke about, because they all deal with other people, right? What's curious is that Jesus omits covet. He didn't say, do not covet in this exchange, nor did he deal with the four commandments speaking of God. The question is why? Well, probably the rich young ruler didn't have to covet. He had everything he could possibly want. There was no need for him to covet. And also, 1 John tells us, Jesus took him step by step. 1 John tells us that if you're deficient in your relationship with other human people, with other, you know, with other people like yourself, uh, you can't have a good relationship with God. So Jesus has taken, before we even deal with God, let's deal with the other people that you're dealing with, right? And the question is, if this ruler really believed he was keeping the law, why was he still searching? Why was he still empty? Why did he come to Jesus? He's kept all these laws from, from the youth. He's an upstanding man in the community. Why come to Jesus and ask him that question? How many people are good and moral people that you know, but they're still searching? They're still striving. There's still a void in their life, and they don't know what to fill it with. Well, maybe um, I need another riding lawnmower. Maybe I need another car. Maybe I need another wife or husband. You know, people try to fill that void, and they find out that after a while, they're still empty again. But the answer is that it's only Jesus that satisfies. Only having a true relationship with, your, with, with God, okay, through his son, Jesus Christ, this man, this ruler was missing something, and he didn't even realize it. You can see the emotional turmoil that he goes through. He has everything, but he goes to the Lord. What, what should I do? The Lord gives him something to do, and he goes away heartbroken. He, he's not happy. So Jesus is not trying to justify this guy by the keeping of the law, but to show him, through the law, his own sin. The law was used as a mirror. Before the law was written, people maybe didn't realize that they were sinning unless somebody told them, you're sinning. So when the, the law came, people could look at that and say, oh, I did that one, I did that one, I do that one every day. So the law is a mirror to us to see where we fall short and basically our need for a savior, our salvation. The Bible says that no one can keep the law perfectly. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's sort of like a chain. The way I read the, the keeping of the law is like a chain. People think, well, there's a lot of laws, and, you know, people compare themselves to others. I'm not a murderer. I'm not in jail. I've never stolen. I'm pretty good. But see, if you take the law, and each law is a link, and the chain is hanging, and you're at the other end of that chain, how many of those links need to break before you plummet to your death? Only one. So the law had to be kept perfectly, and nobody could do it except Christ himself. He was the only one that could attain God's perfection and his standard. So imagine Jesus hearing this response of this man. I've kept all those since I was a youth. Now Jesus has to dig deeper to show him the folly and the falsity of his thinking. Verse 22. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful because he was very rich. Mark's gospel adds that when Jesus was speaking to him, it says Jesus looked at him, Jesus loved him, and Jesus said. He said these things in love. He loved the man. He loved him enough not to just kind of say, hey, you're okay, come on, it's not a big deal. He loved him enough to find his faults, to hone in on them, and love him enough to tell him where he was in error, right? 
And Jesus said prior to follow me in Mark's gospel, also to take up his cross. Take up your cross and follow me. So Jesus is going to take him from his mens sana in the Latin to the mens rea. In other words, he he's thinks he's, he's got it good, he's, he's, he's sane, he's healthy, and now he's got, Jesus has to take him to that transition to show him that he is guilty. You know, sin makes us guilty and his need for a savior. He's going to act as a mirror and reveal that guilt. The last time I said this, it's key, again, who do you compare yourself to? If we compare ourselves to other people, we can always find the worst that we think is in society and look at ourselves and say, we're pretty good. But when we compare ourselves to Jesus Christ, that's when we realize we fall short. Jesus is able to see into this man's soul and extract the one thing that was damning it. And we'll take it in steps. First of all, sell all and distribute to the poor accomplishes two things. If this man was perfectly keeping the law, as he claimed, he, would prove, he could prove to others, which was dictated in the law, his love for others. Uh, what he could do is he could love his neighbor. He could, the people who were around him, well, people, would, you know, people back then, it was usually the very rich and the very poor. And the very rich were surrounded by the very poor. If you saw the rich man in Lazarus, you know, the beggars, the, the ones who had nothing, would be laid at the gate of the rich people and they would eat pretty much the refuse, the garbage that the rich people didn't eat. So, number one, this guy could prove his really keeping of the law about loving his neighbors by distributing the poor to all the needy kids around him. How could this man sleep knowing hoarding of his riches was causing people to starve to death? So that's the first thing. Also, he could prove to Jesus that a perfect follower of the law that he claimed to be would not allow anything to be a hindrance to perfectly please God. God wants me to do this, it's done. Whatever God asks, I will do it. But he didn't do that. The second step that Jesus gave him was take up his cross and follow Jesus, which is really the most important part of the equation. The ruler asks, what must I do? But Jesus doesn't beat him up. He meets him where he's at. What must I do? Do this. He gives him something to do. In Matthew's gospel, it adds that the ruler not only was sorrowful, but he went away. He, he was dejected and he went away. You think what Jesus asked the guy to do. You know, he wanted to follow God. Jesus gave him the prescription and he couldn't do it. And he went away sorrowful. I just can't do it. And he departed. What must I do? I'll do anything became, well, anything but that. What else do you have for me? How often in marriage does I do become I don't want it anymore. And we see that. Marriage doesn't have a good track record in this country. Uh, people, look, when you're married, your spouses are going to get on your nerves. Come on. <laughs> don't tell me, any of you, who, who you got like, oh, we never argue. We never disagree about anything. Come on. You're, you're putting up a facade in front of other people. God made us so different. Men and women are just so different. And that's something we'll be figuring it out until he takes us home. We're going to get on each other's nerves. Things are going to bother us about each other. But you know what? You've you got, you got to hang in there. You've know, you got, to, you got to stay together, that commitment. Whether it's marriage or serving the Lord or whatever, it just seems that the commitment level in our society is just poor. It stinks anymore. The ruler had everything he wanted. He didn't have to steal. He didn't have to covet. He didn't have to kill. And he, everything was fine until he had to make a commitment. Everything was fine until he had to do what the Lord really wanted him to do. Everything was fine until there were costs associated with following the Lord. So often I hear people say, I love God, I love God, but they don't want to do what his word says. 
The Bible says in John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will follow my words. Well, how do you know that you're really loving God if you've never read his words? The Old Testament says the same thing. God tells you, this is how you know if you love me. There's conditional statements involved with that. So the question is, what is it in our lives that we have to put on the altar and kill in order to serve the Lord? Sometimes it could be a sinful relationship. People just don't want to give up. They know it's wrong, but they just... They just need it too much. They crave it too much. They don't want to put it on the altar. Sometimes it's pride or knowledge. You know, my wife went to uh, a course, Heather and Sherry went to a counseling course over the weekend, or over this past week uh, in Pennsylvania, and Heather was, was grieving. She told me about, this was a really great counseling course. People from all over the world actually come to this seminar. Uh, it's biblical counseling. And uh, my wife was grieving because there were so many people who were so smart, so studied in seminary, so into theology and the deep things of God that were so empty in the Christian circle. It's like you, you get so prideful. You know, what does Paul say? That knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. You know, you get so head, big in the head that you, you start to lose it in here, and that becomes a problem. Riches, right here in the story, riches can be uh, certainly separate us from from the love of God. Our spare time. That's my time. I'll write a check. I'll donate. But I'm not giving my time to anybody. That's precious to me. I tell you what. Time is more precious than money to me. But you know what? You still got to give time and put into people. Um, even, you know, even sports. Anything that's... Sorry, Anthony, with the whole Rutgers thing. But just kidding. Sports are really innocuous. They're harmless. And you know what? It's a main... It's a a pastime of our society. But Satan can use the kitchen sink. He can use anything as a wedge to separate us from our Father in heaven, from the love of God, right? Uh, you know, there was, there was always the old stereotype, the gender stereotype of the husband on the couch with the remote control, and he's watching the football game, and the wife comes by and wants, wants a little affection. Like, not, not now, honey. Wait till the commercial. I'm watching the game, you know? And that's kind of morphed into even... I'm probably going to lose half of you with this one, even with our kids. Now, again, some people go from sports event to sports event to sports event with their kids. 30, 40 years ago, when were sports on a Sunday? Now they're all on Sunday. And look, if you can do it all, that's great. Again, sports are harmless. They're innocuous. But if you're so engrossed with something that you find out that you're not praying anymore, you're not reading your Bible you're not fellowshipping with other believers, sometimes you've got to say to yourself, what am I doing? What is going on in my life that now there's a separation between me and God? And how do I bridge that separation again? It's things you have to put on the altar. Look, I'm not up here to be everybody's buddy. I'm here to, to scratch you where you itch, even if you don't know where you're itching. I really struggled with that one because, you know what, the Holy Spirit puts things on my heart and, you know, just like these prophets, they're like, oh, Lord, I've got to go before the king and tell them they're going to lose the war. You know, everybody wants to be liked, but you just got to, the Holy Spirit puts it on your heart, you've you got to say it. It's got to come out. Two more points on this passage. One, Jesus knew the man's reliance on his riches were keeping him from seeing God, and he loved him enough to tell him. Proverbs 27, 6, which I love says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. If you surround yourself with people who always tell you how great you are, they're not your friends. 
One of the hardest things that you ever will have to do as a Christian is to oppose a good friend and tell them you're doing the wrong thing. And, you know, you, 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 you agonize about it and you, you don't want to do it and you're hoping it'll go away. But you know what? If you really love that person, sometimes you've got to sit them down and love and say, this is wrong. You know, you can't do this. You know, this is what the Bible says. I've certainly been taught by uh, men of God who've done that for me. You know, Artie in the back and Luis Solis. I mean, these guys didn't pull any punches with sitting me down and saying, listen, you, what you're doing is wrong. But you know what? Because I knew that they loved me, I accepted it. It didn't turn into a wrestling match, you know. Uh, I remember one time when I bought my house, uh, when Heather and I, the, the house that we live in now, I said, I always want something with a big living room so that, and it, our living room isn't that big, but it was bigger than the, the last house. And I was like, because I want to do Bible studies. I want to have a men's group and I want to serve the Lord. And when I got the house, it needed a lot of repair. And months went by and then a year went by and I'm fixing this and fixing that. And my, my good friend and elder, Art Kiefer, sat me down and said, Joe, you're making your house a God. And I thought about all the responses that I could give to him, but I had nothing to say because he was right. He says, you said that when you got this, the Lord gave you everything you wanted in his home, and now you're not filling your end of the bargain. And that's a good friend. I needed to hear that. And it wasn't long after that that I started having men's groups there. And praise God, there was a lot of fruit from that. So you know what? You've got to love people. Uh, Paul did it to Peter, Galatians 2.11. Paul said, I withstood Peter to his face because he played the hypocrite. He rebuked Peter and said, man, you're, you're, you stink, man. You're doing, this is wrong. You know, we, we already have the Holy Spirit. What are you doing here with, 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 with shunning these people? So it's very important to do. And, you know, Jesus did that with the man. The second thing is Jesus didn't run after the man. Jesus didn't say, rich young ruler, he's dejected, he, he runs away, he walks away, he's all sad. Jesus didn't say, whoa, 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 wait, 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 rich young ruler. L let me change my doctrine for you. Let me tweak my doctrine a little bit so you could be happy and we could be friends and you could follow me. You know, he didn't do that. He loved them enough to tell them the truth. Some have this philosophy, even in churches today, they don't talk about sin. They don't talk about hell. They don't talk about the blood of Christ, the cross. They don't talk about commitment, persecution, you know. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, Psalms 34 says. If you follow the Lord, the forces of evil will turn on you. Many of the afflictions of the righteous. They don't talk about the deity of Christ because it may offend people. I have a friend who belongs to a certain uh, church and everything's watered down, he tells me. He goes, well, we don't want to offend people. We want people to come in and we don't want it to be offensive. Well, I got news for you. God's word is offensive. If you're in sin, God's word is offensive. Talk to Jeremiah. Talk to Ezekiel. Talk to Isaiah. Uh, you know, it's offensive. Jeremiah was a young guy when he started out in his ministry. He had his whole life ahead of him. Could have been married. He could have had kids. God said, no, you're not going to get married. You're not going to have children. You're going to serve me. And go to the king and tell him that he's messed up. Go to the soldiers and tell them they're going to lose the war. The Babylonians are going to come over the wall and, and you know, they're going to invade. I can imagine Jeremiah, he must have had knots in his stomach all the time, you know. But he did what the Lord asked him to do. And what did he get for it? He got beat up. He got thrown into a well and left for, for dead uh, to starve for three days. And then finally somebody pulled him out. He, he had a tough life, that guy. God's word is offensive. And, you know, it's, it's, it is what it is. Verse 24. It says, And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? 
Why were they so, who then can be saved? Why was that so odd to them? Because in that day it was believed that if you were rich, it means that you were blessed by God. So it came to a point in time where those who were wealthy were looked at as, you know, wealthiness is next to godliness or something like that. And um, Jesus' statement must have befuddled them. And unfortunately, it does befuddle a lot of people today because people still have that attitude, even among Christianity. If you have faith, if you're really a good Christian, you're going to be rich and you'll never be sick. You know, if you're sick, tell yourself you're not sick. The power of the words and you won't be sick. That's not, that's not reflected in the scripture. And it, again, the other extreme is it doesn't mean rich people are bad and can't get into heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Uh, I can go through many you know, examples of people who are wealthy who uh, were in the kingdom of heaven, who got in, who did well. But Jesus had the insight, the spiritual insight, to hone on this man's problems, and it was riches. Because if you look at, actually, next Sunday, we're going to go into Zacchaeus, uh, Luke 19, uh, the rich chief tax collector. And he gets saved, but he's rich and, and, you know, he does well. But the difference between the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus is Zacchaeus says to the Lord immediately, he goes, you know what, if I've... If I rip people off, I'll repay fourfold. I give a certain amount of percentage of my wealth to the poor. Jesus didn't even have to ask him. This guy just, his heart was changed. He repented, boom, and this is what his actions were. But it wasn't so with the rich young ruler. Jesus speaks about it's easier for a camel to get through a needle's eye than for a rich man to get into heaven. It's a Jewish hyperbole, meaning it's tough. But why is it tough? Well, because, and I've said this before, everything that you rely on God for, now riches is doing for you. Riches is taking care of your health because you could have the best health plan. Riches is taking care of your security because you can have the best security because you got money. Riches is taking care of all your needs. You could have butlers and maids and all kinds of servants. So now what God normally would do for us, you've, it's morphed. You slowly and surely use riches now to replace God. So it, it becomes an idolatry. And God won't take second place. Those of you who were married, ask your spouse if you, you, know, you can go and get another spouse and they'll be second place. You'll probably get a left hook. You know, my wife would give me one. So if your spouse won't take second place, why, why should God take second place in your marriage, in your life? Why should he? He shouldn't, and he won't. Um, the other night, or a few nights ago, somebody really blessed us and with a gift certificate to, um, to a really high-end restaurant. And I've never been to, you know, something like that, and it was kind of neat. There was a tablecloth, and I would put my elbows down. There was actually a padding under the tablecloth, so my elbows would feel nice when I put them down because I'm a barbarian. I keep my elbows on the table, right? And they had a crumb collector. This is something I've never seen before. Between each course, a guy would come around with this little device, and he would scoop up the crumbs. It would, like, scoop them like a little vacuum cleaner or something. And, of course, I had the most crumbs, so he had to work overtime with me. But I'm thinking, man, this is fancy schmancy, as my grandfather would say. But these people took great care of you. You know, every course, they changed the silverware, and they took your plates away and gave you new stuff. I'm like, wow, I've never been pampered like this. And you could see how people wouldn't, who would want to give that up, you know? You become, wow, this is a nice, nice lifestyle. You become addicted to it, right? But riches can have a captivating effect, and I believe that's what Jesus is saying. Riches can have a captivating effect on people, and it can work against their salvation. Look at, and I've said this before, I, I, I study the people who have won the lottery. 
the majority, the large majority in, in the 90s percentile, uh, those people, their lives were ruined by winning the, the lottery. Normal, average people. Uh, one guy uh, claimed to be, you know, his church member spoke after he died, and he was supposedly a born-again Christian. And he won the lottery and become very wealthy. He ended up leaving his wife, you know, going with somebody else. And his life, his life spiraled, you know, downward spiral. You know how, how his life ended? With a shotgun to the mouth. It's pretty bad, isn't it? I don't want to win the lottery. I don't play it. But, you know, Agur said in Proverbs, give me neither riches nor poverty. <laughs> Nobody wants poverty. But he was wise enough to say, give me not riches either, because I know what that can do. So you understand what Jesus is saying here. Look at Hollywood. Uh, you know, like pick on Hollywood a lot, but I know a guy who does security and uh, he actually uh, takes the Hollywood people around. He works in New York. And he said, Joe, what you see in the tabloids about their lives is not. They all live a double life. You know, I mean, they, they put arranged marriages, the whole deal. He goes, they really have a bad life because they're, you know, the, the riches and the fame does something to them. So, and we can go on. Pol politics. A lot of people start off good in politics. They're in politics for a certain amount of years and they change because it's the wealth, the power, you know, it, they, it becomes addicting and captivating. So, you know, I don't want that stuff, but first, I'm not going to get it anyway, so, you know, something to say. <laughs> Verse 27, but he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. We often get up, uh, we often get caught up in our achievements. We, we, we get caught up in looking at other people and get caught up in their achievements. But you know what? When things go wrong, when everything you know, goes south, we cry out to God. But you know what? We should be with him in the first place. So when things go wrong, he's right there next to us, right? Uh, when, when my wife goes away, my son likes to sleep in the bed with me, you know, in, the, in her, my wife's side of the bed. And, uh, you know, there's a big difference when he has a nightmare and he's in the other room and I have to get up and go into that room versus where, when he's right next to me and he's sleeping and he whimpers and I put my hand on him and he's okay. Big difference. Same thing with us and God. When, we're, when we have that distance between us and we cry out to God, it's more fearful. But if we're there close and we, we keep that, that close distance with him and all he has to do is touch us and give us an assurance and, and settle our spirits, it takes, it takes care of us a lot quicker. So salvation is impossible with man. It's impossible for man to attain salvation by any means. That's why... <laughs> It's by God's grace, and the vehicle is faith, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tell us. If works were true and we could work our way into heaven and it had to do with wealth and all the things that we could do in our achievements, then the wealthy and influential, the same positions they have here, those high positions, they would maintain them in the afterlife. And the poor people who don't have people praying for them and don't have, um, they're disabled and they don't have uh, you know, wealth to be able to do good deeds, they would maintain that lowly position in heaven. But see, it's the reverse with God. So God's not going to reward our achievements and what we can do because it's not fair to people who were born with less. Verse 28. Then Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. Love Peter. Uh, Peter says, basically, what's the reward for those of us who have been obedient? Not like that guy. Look at us. We're still here. What do we get? You know, Peter's the type of guy that if it was a question that nobody wanted to ask, they would make Peter do it, and he would do it, I'm sure. Kind of reminds me of that life commercial with Mikey. Give Mikey. Let Mikey try it. He'll eat anything. That's Peter. 
But, um, you know, uh, that's the question that's posed to Jesus. Verse 29, he answers him and says, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come everlasting life. So a few things here. It shows the incredible importance of the gospel dispensation, how important it was, especially in that time, to establish the church, Jesus is the foundation, to establish it, send these guys forth, and, and continue on with it. So it's a question of priorities. Number one, transition from biological to spiritual families. Probably, and I'm blessed, because, you know, uh, Heather, and my wife and I came to the Lord about the same time, then my sister, then my mother, then my father, then my brothers. It was like a domino effect. But, you know, there are people in my family that, that still aren't saved. And what you'll find is that you'll, There'll be a transition. You'll be, there'll be people that, you know, you still pray for. You still love them. You still see them on the holidays. You still try to um, help them to see the sense of, of following the Lord. But there is going to be a transition from biological to spiritual families. The people that you see around you here uh, are probably going to be closer to you or, you know, they'll be more your, of your family than some people that uh, are your biological relations. Two, leave anything in competition with Christ. If there's anything that is in competition with the Lord, uh, you know, that's got to be, you, you've got to leave that. Three, it's the importance of giving eternal life to the world. My sister Danielle, we always grew up close, and we, you know, I'm not going to do like the Bill Cosby. We, you know, we, we, we walked to school in the snow both ways uphill. But, you know, we had a meager life when we were kids, and my sister and I were always very, very close. And uh, some years back, she went to a missions trip to Mexico. And I was like, hey, right on. My sister's going to Mexico. And she came back and she went again. She came back and she said, I think the Lord is leading me to Mexico. I want to minister to those people. And I got mad at her because, like, she was leaving us, you know. And I actually had to apologize. But um, it was cool because my sister left us because she felt a higher calling of God. And she went to Mexico for years and ministered to those people. And she found her husband there, which is great. Now she's married and she's pregnant. So, you know, God does great things. But... She had to leave to do what the Lord had called her to do. And because of the fruit, I know that definitely was from the Lord. Verse 31. It says, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. And they will scourge him and put him to death. And the third day he will rise again. He's reminding them of his ultimate mission which is the most, important, the most important reason of why Jesus came to the earth, to die for our sins. He gives great details according to the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you a few scriptures that speak about uh, what he's encompassing here. Isaiah 53, most of you are familiar with that. It's a picture of rejection and how he was silent before his accusers. Micah 5.1, Micah 5.1 speaks about how he was struck on the cheek, among other things. Isaiah 52:14. it spoke about how his visage was marred. He was beat up so bad that he was hard to be recognized. He got scourged uh, very brutally, uh, and, and he just wasn't recognizable because of all the blood and, the, and the, the trauma to his face and his body. Isaiah 56, Isaiah 50, verse 6, speaks about the scourging, the beatings. Psalm 22, most of you are familiar with, speaks of, it's really, they call it the Psalm of the Cross or the Psalm of the Crucifixion. 
Psalm 22, specifically verses 6 through 8, spoke about how Jesus was mocked. And Psalm, two Psalms, Psalm 16:10 and Psalm 49:15, spoke about his resurrection. Okay? It's interesting how the disciples, uh, you know, these guys initially recognized Jesus as the Messiah. It didn't take much for them to come follow him because of the Old Testament prophecies. But it's funny how the stuff about the, the abuse and the afflictions, they kind of put out of their mind. And we do that too sometimes. If there's something that we don't want to get the whole picture because some of it's maybe too painful, we kind of put it out of our minds. But they had to take it all into totality, and this is what Jesus had to do. He had to go to the cross. Verse 34, it says, But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. How was it hidden? Some people speculate, well, maybe Jesus was talking allegories again. Maybe he's not really meaning what he says here. Maybe it's an object lesson. Maybe their ideas, uh, the disciples didn't want to see it because they thought as the conquering Messiah, they would be 12 generals, you know, like Alexander the Great when he conquered uh, you know, he left four major generals to control all of the Grecian Empire. Well, maybe they figured with Jesus at the helm as the conquering Messiah, they all were going to get, you know, a conquering role as a general, right? Uh, you know, maybe a little selfishly. But I think that it was hidden from them divinely or sovereignly. I think that God did not allow them to see the full gravity right now of what was going to happen. Then what was the purpose of telling them? So that when it was their time to receive the full picture that and they were stable enough to handle it, that their memories would bring it back in full, you know, recognizance. And of course, we we see through the book of Acts how they recalled a lot of the scriptures and recalled a lot of the events leading up to the crucifixion. And they were able to witness because they had all that information in their heads. I think about one of our uh, missionaries to Guatemala. This guy, (laughs) some incredible stories. They, they, uh, they have machete raids on the villages. You know, they get attacked by these people with machetes. That's what they do in a lot of these, these countries. They, uh, they fight with machetes because they can't afford firearms. And it's a brutal way of life. Uh, people come and attack your village. People lose hands. They lose arms. It's just they get, they get slashed. If you ever see people come back from these areas, and they just, they're all scarred up. It's a common occurrence. Uh, but this, our, our missionary has come close to losing his life a few times because of these attackers. Uh, actually, I gave him one of my titanium trauma plates to wear in his vest, so maybe it'll protect him a little bit. But he's in, his, he's in his 20s. He's a young guy. And the question is, would if he understood the full gravity of what was he was going to do in Guatemala when he was 13, right? He was too young and he was too innocent, really, to handle the whole thing. So uh, God was, was gentle with Stephen, our, our missionary, and over time he built him up to understand what he was going to do. And now he, he, under, he, you know, he endures these attacks and all these things, and he's just serving the Lord, and it doesn't affect him anymore, you see? So um, you know, he probably would have never gone if he would have uh, found out the full gravity of it too soon. So the disciples, no doubt, are listening to Jesus' great teachings, his great miracles, his great popularity, certainly they received some popularity. That's why Jesus had to give them uh, continually. He spoke to them continually about being humble. But who would ever thought it would end? I'm sure they, they were like basking in what was going on and thinking, oh, this is great. Jesus is awesome. We love this stuff. But eventually it did end in a sense in the crucifixion. 
A few things to take from this. I saw a bumper sticker on a car. It was from a church. I don't remember which church. But it said, no cross, or no cross, no crown. You know, if you're looking for crowns, if you're looking for great things in the afterlife, you've got to pick up your cross, Jesus says. And I'm going to read something that uh, Warren Wearsby uh, quotes about this chapter, which I think he does a great job in summing up. Wearsby says this, and just bringing it all home. He says, Peter's comment in verse 28 suggests that he had a rather commercial view of discipleship. What then will there be for us? Jesus promised all of them blessings in this life and reward in the life to come. But then he balanced his words with another announcement about his impending suffering and death. How could Peter be thinking about personal gain when his Lord was going to Jerusalem to be crucified? The rich young ruler is a warning to people who want a Christian faith that does not change their values or upset their lifestyle. Jesus does not command every seeking sinner to sell everything and give to the poor, but he does put his finger on conviction on any area in our lives about which we are dishonest. I think that was a great summation. So I figured I would read what he said instead of trying to come up with my own thing here. Uh, But, you know... We don't know exactly what happened to the rich young ruler after this. We don't hear from him again in the scripture. It's certainly a possibility that he got saved later on in life, uh, as Jesus' power, powerful words probably couldn't be squelched in his mind. But we don't know. We don't know. He might not have ever changed. But what I can tell you uh, is that with all the riches this ruler had, after a short conversation with Jesus, I can tell you this, that none of those riches were able to comfort him. All the stuff that he had and all the the reliance on his keeping of the law and all the riches, the Bible is clear. This man was clearly disturbed after Jesus told him what he needed to do to have eternal life. And all his riches could not comfort him. So, you know, there's definitely shortcomings there. The cost of following him. Everything of value in this life has a cost. It costs something. And think about this. It costs Jesus his life. For the first time in eternity and for the last time in eternity, the same time, Jesus was on the cross. For the first and last time in eternity, God was actually separated from himself because of sin, because of our sin. Think about that. And we saw the cost of, 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 on that side of eternity, what he had to deal with. If the rich young ruler couldn't break away from those, early, you know, those, those earthly riches, then his cost has been heavy for the last 2,000 years. By contrast, any of the cost that the disciples has suffered for following the Lord pale in comparison to the rewards that they've attained for the last 2,000 years. Look at the difference. Look at the, the two parties and, and how, you know, what their paths lead to at the end. If you follow him today, what will it cost you? could cost you family members. could cost you friends. People could say that you're a Bible thumper or a Jesus freak and think you're weird, you know, that you don't do the things that they do anymore. could cost you riches. could cost you a promotion. could cost you a relationship. Success, who knows? Whatever it is that you are having a hard time putting on the chopping block, think about this. Putting on the chopping block for God. If you don't know him, is anything really worth preventing you from entering the kingdom of heaven? And that's a question that only you individually can answer. Let's pray.